Well, today we find our way back to Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, find your way to Luke 16. And I want to share with you a a message that I've titled, Hero Status or Hero Service. And I really want to ask kind of the, the overarching question, which would be, Which of those two are you striving for in the year to come, in the decade to come? Are you you striving for hero status? Are are you striving to be known for your accomplishments, your achievements, your prestige in the eyes of others? Or are you striving for hero service? That is, you've found a hero and you're striving, you're gearing your life, you're aiming at serving that one. And, and I just want to ask you to, to kind of ponder for a moment. What comes to mind when you think of the word hero? That's a question I asked my family last night as I was kind of stewing on today's message. And, and my oldest son, Micah, said that the first thing that came to his mind when he thought of the word hero was Superman. And now that's pretty accurate in terms of the origins of This word hero, by the way, since that word can actually be traced back to the Greek word heros, which was used to describe demi-gods, or really those mythological sort of figures that the Greeks bounced around who they believed had more power, more knowledge, something more than just the average individual. Accordingly, That word, hero, then came to be used to describe some men of superhuman strength or superhuman sort of courage. Micah also said that in kind of a general sense, the word hero caused him to think of a savior, as in someone who rescues others, someone who saves the day. And that was enough to affirm me as his dad that I was on the right track with my thoughts about today's topic. Well, next, I ask, he's in, he's in class right now, but I ask our youngest, Caleb, what comes to mind when you think of the word hero? And he told me when he thinks of the word hero, he thinks of Batman, yet another superhero figure. And then he mentioned to me someone named Nom Nom from a show called We Bear Bears. And that reminded me that I need to pay more attention to what my kids are watching because I have no idea who Nom Nom is or what we bear bears might be. Next, I asked my daughter, Ellie, what comes to mind when she thinks of the word hero? And she responded by saying one word, mom. And, and yeah, that was pretty heartwarming until she added a few words to that one word by saying mom and not you. <laughs> Now, on the heels of that, my wife, Amy, said, Honey, you're my hero. But I'm pretty sure she was just trying to heal the hurt that Ellie had brought to me. Still, it was a a sweet sentiment. I appreciate that. One of Merriam-Webster's nine or so definitions of the word hero is a person admired for achievements and noble qualities. You know, truth be told that's that's probably the ambition behind the most frequent new year's resolutions individuals want to be admired they want to elevate themselves they want to be seen as heroes in the eyes of others 
or heroes of their own affairs. And so they resolve to make changes in the new year that will allow them to attain hero status. With a quick Google search, I found the top 10 resolutions that people make when the new year comes around. And really, any of them could be undertaken in order to make yourself seem to be a hero or feel like a hero among your peers, to be admired in their sight, or to be considered more noble than them. Now, that's not necessarily the case for any of these resolutions, but I do think that's why many folks have decided to make these resolutions as they think about what they want to strive for in the new year. And that list of the most common resolutions includes resolutions to lose weight and get fit. That's not wrong-headed on its own, but it could be an effort to outdo others or to impress others. That list also includes getting organized and learning a new skill and attaining more money. Again, these aren't necessarily evil pursuits unless they are undertaken primarily so that you can show up your neighbors and how you're thriving in these areas where they are not. Living life to the fullest was yet another one of those common resolutions. And that, my friends, is one that is certainly a bit short-sighted, as Jesus has already shown us in the Gospel of Luke to this point. But really, any of those resolutions could be made in an effort to achieve hero status, either in your own eyes or in the eyes of other people. But in today's passage, Jesus has some strong words for people in his day who were seeking hero status. He showed them, and he's showing us, that the pursuit for achievements and the pursuit of status, purely in an effort to impress others or to satisfy ourselves, that sort of pursuit is detestable to God. In fact, Jesus directs our attention to our hearts which he shows us that God can see. God sees our hearts. He sees our motives. And he shows us by doing so that pursuing hero status, seeking to be our own saviors, exalting ourselves above others, is a detestable pursuit in the sight of our God. So read with me now Luke chapter 16. We'll start in verse 14, and you'll see, hopefully, what I mean. If you're able, I'd ask that you would stand, that we might honor the reading of God's Word together. Luke 16, starting in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. That is, they were scoffing at Jesus. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of of the law to fail. And he gives this application in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. 
And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This passage begins with the scoffing of some of Jesus' most frequent foes in verse 14. And it really seems like this kind of disjointed set of verses until you realize that it all kind of boils down to whether or not we as individuals, whether or not these individuals that Jesus is speaking to, and by application, by extension, you and I today, whether or not we respect the authority of Jesus. These individuals who he is confronting in this passage did not respect his authority. And so they scoffed at him in verse 14. And these foes were the chief seekers of hero status in their day. It was this group that we've encountered so many times in Luke's gospel, known as the Pharisees. By way of a quick reminder, the Pharisees were this small but very influential group of religious rule followers in Jesus' day. They strove to keep themselves separate from others who didn't live with the meticulous attention to holiness that they themselves lived with. As a matter of fact, this word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parash, which literally means to separate. They were striving to live separate lives, lives apart from the sinners, lives apart from those who were not honoring God's law. And so they studied God's law, and they made every outward effort to keep God's law. In fact, they cultivated these special traditions in order to ensure that they wouldn't even get close to God's law in violating it. And so in so doing, in creating these extra traditions, they began to hold others accountable as though those traditions, which were man-made, were in fact the law of God. And they began to condemn others. They began to look down on others because those others weren't living up to their man-made traditions. And so by doing, they loaded others up with burdens and with guilt and with works. And these Pharisees were primarily seeking to save themselves and to earn the respect of others. They wanted to be the religious heroes in the eyes of other people. And that's why Jesus confronts them here in this passage. And, and you know, let me just take a moment here to mention that that. A great degree of religion will do you no good. It's not religion that makes you right with God. You see, when Christ came to earth, it was the most religious people who were the greatest foes of his. And he found himself conflicting with him over and over again because religion focuses on works, whereas faith focuses on relationship. And Christ calls for us to have a relationship with him, not a relationship based on the works that we've done, but based on the finished work that he has done in purchasing salvation for us. And some people get the idea, well, you know, all roads lead to heaven. If you're sincere enough, it doesn't matter what road you're taking or what religion you're pursuing. Friends, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because we've got the most sincere people of Jesus' day here in this passage. And Jesus is confronting them in the fact that they will not lay their sin in the dust and place their trust in him. 
And so I remind you that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by Him. No amount of your own religion is going to get you there, friends. And here, the Pharisees are not happy with something Jesus has been saying. And it's been a few weeks since we saw Jesus' words in the passage that precedes today's text. But Jesus has just spoken this parable of the unrighteous steward. He has just encouraged his disciples. And he's encouraged those who were within earshot, which included the Pharisees, by the way, to use the resources that God had given them in their lives in order to advance his kingdom work. And Jesus wrapped up that lesson in verse 13 with these words. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he summarizes that by saying, you cannot serve God and wealth. Well, those words, it hit a nerve for the Pharisees, and that led them into open scoffing of the Lord and his teachings. They were the prototypical hypocrites. They pretended to be lovers of God, but they really loved themselves more. They really loved their bank accounts more. They really loved their possessions and their status more. They really wanted more money, more status, more prestige for themselves. So this idea that they couldn't serve God and wealth drove them into open scoffing of Jesus. They give us a clear example of what it's like to aim for hero status. And from that example, I want you to consider, are you aiming for hero status? Are you aiming for hero status? As you think about the year and the decade that are now on the horizon, what are you aiming to accomplish in this time that is to come? What are you resolving to do with your time and with your energy and with your money? Could it be that your resolutions might be aiming for hero status like the Pharisees? Well, let me give you four indicators you might be aiming for hero status with your resolutions for what's next. And these all come from really what Jesus gives us as a diagnosis of the Pharisees' problem in verse 15. Here's the first one. Are you performing the wrong action? The, the Pharisees were certainly performing the wrong action here. Jesus calls their wrong action out when he says, You are those who justify yourselves. Now, that word justify is simply a word which means to declare something right or declare something righteous. It's a word that you might have heard in a court of law in Jesus' day. When a judge would pronounce that someone had done the right thing and therefore was not guilty. But when it comes to our status and our standing before God, the fallen humans that we are, justifying ourselves is not possible. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God. And so doing our own work, striving to keep the law perfectly in order to earn our own right standing before God, this sort of pursuit that the Pharisees were pursuing is an empty pursuit. One 19th century Scottish philosopher wisely said, the greatest of faults is to be conscious of none. Because we all have faults. We all 
in our natural state have sinned. We all have willfully made choices against God's design. And we all naturally, in our natural state, stand guilty before God. And one way we aim for hero status is by performing the wrong action and seeking to justify ourselves. Secondly, I ask you, are you performing for the wrong audience? Again, the Pharisees are our models here. They not only seek to justify themselves per Jesus, they do this in the sight of men. They think that getting others to consider them holy and righteous is enough to cause God to do the same sort of thing. As if I have high esteem among my peers, well, God's going to have high esteem of me as well. They think that if they can fool others, if they can only give the impression that their lives are clean and pure, then they'll be all set. And it may be true that outwardly, the Pharisees could compare themselves with others and they could justify themselves. Because it was true that they did more and they went farther than the average Jew when it came to keeping God's law. They strove harder than anyone to keep all of the outward rules but it was all a show it was all done before men rather than being done before God and when you play to the wrong audience you'll always end up with the wrong result can you imagine if I just showed up today at another church you know I made the decision hey I want to go preach somewhere else today I just showed up at another church and where another pastor had already spent his time in God's word, seeing God's leading on, on where he wanted him to speak to his flock at that place. And I just showed up and said, hey, man, I want to preach here today. I, I want to come and I want to speak to the wrong audience. Do you think I'm going to have the desired result there? Probably not, right? That, that pastor's probably not going to be too excited to see me coming and trying to speak to the wrong audience. It wouldn't go well. It wouldn't produce the desired result. That's true when we seek to perform our righteous deeds before the wrong audience as well. These Pharisees were living before men and not before God. They were filled with pride. They were filled with hypocrisy. When they gave their alms, they did it to be noticed by men, Jesus said. When they uttered their long prayers, they did so to impress others with how spiritual they were and while these things were designed to honor God their performance of these things brought him no glory and provided no positive result for them because they performed these things for the wrong audience and so the second way we aim for hero status is by performing for the wrong audience by gearing our good works for the approval of men which is closely related to the third indicator you might be aiming for hero status with your resolutions. Which is this. Are you performing with the wrong ambition? Jesus makes it clear that the Pharisees were doing what they were doing so that they might be highly esteemed by men. And they were. I mean, they were highly esteemed by men. They had the respect of the people. When someone needed a religious expert, they called on the Pharisees. When someone wanted to know how to live according to God's law, they consulted a Pharisee. But earning the esteem of men, the honor and the status and the prestige that men can give, 
This is not what God has designed you and I to do. The right ambition is to glorify the God who made us, the God who redeems us. Our lives are not meant to attain the status and the reputation and the glory of those around us. Our lives are meant to bring glory to God. That's what God has designed us to do. He deserves all the glory. And when we perform with the wrong ambition, we become glory sponges ourselves. We end up soaking up all the glory to ourselves. But that's not what God has designed you and I to do, my friends. We were all made for His glory. We were called to bring honor to His name. Praise to the weight of who He is. And that's why we talk about our mission as a church being a mission to multiply God's glory on the earth. That's what he's designed us to do. And the trouble with performing the wrong ambition, the trouble with soaking up the glory to ourselves is that God knows our hearts. That becomes so abundantly clear here in this passage. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, but God knows your hearts. That's consistent with what God reveals elsewhere. When the prophet Samuel was sent to anoint God's king, David, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read that the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I just ask you, does it comfort you or does it concern you to know that God sees the inner recesses of your heart? Can you rest in the fact that God knows the motives behind what you do? Because the Pharisees could not. That's why they're scoffing. They wanted to be right. And here was Jesus telling them that they were not right. They professed to trust God But they were measuring their lives by their wealth and by their possessions. They were after the things that are highly esteemed by the world. And friends, let me just say, far too many individuals who claim to be Christians today are making the same mistake. With their lips, they honor the Lord. But with their wealth, they live just like the rest of the world who does not know him but hear me on this friends that will never be enough outward works will never cover a bad heart only God can transform only God can purify a bad heart and so I ask you are you performing with a wrong ambition because that's the third indicator that you might be aiming for hero status with your resolutions of what's next here's the final indicator Are you producing the wrong aftermath? You see, the Pharisees thought that they were serving God. They thought that they were living righteously before him. But in the end, Jesus declares that that the highly esteemed status that they seem to have among men, this highly esteemed status that they were ultimately pursuing, was in fact detestable to God. That word detestable, literally in the original Greek, had this idea of something that reeked of a foul smell. They thought the aftermath of their outward actions would be that God would accept them. 
But instead, they produced a stench in his sight. And friends, we must all recognize that God doesn't value what is highly esteemed before men. If you're going to make resolutions, don't let the world define what those resolutions are going to be. Don't fall in line with the things that other men and women and boys and girls highly esteem. Don't let your heart be pulled into the pursuit of hero status by seeking material things, elevated status, pride in what you've accomplished. Because our efforts at self-righteousness and our efforts at earning high esteem among others will always produce the wrong aftermath. As Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping. We see Paul's heart on display as he talks about these who walk in this way. He said that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Once again, God's word is calling us to not set our mind on earthly things, but to set our mind on the things where our eternal prize is, where our eternal champion resides, where our hero now lives. To set our minds on the things which are incorruptible, as Christ so often reminds us to do. And so I just want to ask you, friend, are you seeking hero status? Let me ask it another way. Who's the hero of your life? Are you or is God? Like when you tell others about the things that have happened in your life, maybe this past year, maybe over the span of your life, who's the hero of those stories? Is it you or is it God? Some people I talk to, yes, even some individuals in the church seem to only tell stories where they prove themselves to be the hero. It's as if they've lived a perfect life. And so when they tell stories about their past, they brag about how they showed themselves to be smarter than someone else. They brag about things which they had done and figured out that nobody else could figure out. They're always the heroes of their own stories. They rejoice in proving themselves to be smart when everyone else is dumb. And look, some of you are smarter than me, okay? It's a pretty obvious sort of thing. You're smarter than your employers. Some of you probably live more holy lives than your pastor. Or at least more holy lives than your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members. But don't bank on that. Don't bank on your high esteem among men. Because here's the problem. One day you will stand to give an account of your soul. But you won't stand before your pastor. You won't stand before your neighbors or your co-workers or your family members. You will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ And you are not as good as you think you are, no matter how religious you may be. Which is why I compel you, you need a hero. And so I I urge you, aim for hero service, not hero status. 
our resolutions for the new year could be, I want to be a hero, or they could be, I want to be a servant of my hero. And old friends, let me encourage you, choose the latter Know the true hero. Serve the true hero. Let me show you quickly how to aim for hero service over hero status. First way is this. Silence your scoffing. Silence your scoffing. The Pharisees scoffed because they didn't want a hero. They wanted to become heroes themselves. But I urge you, don't let your love for something less than Jesus cause you to scoff at Jesus. Now, you may say, oh, I would never audibly sound off as some sort of disapproval against the Lord Jesus. But I do wonder, are there times when you hear the word of God and you hear God speaking through his spirit to confront you in ways in which you ought to be conforming your life to his word? Are there times when God's spirit convicts and yet you say, I'm not going to do that? Friends, when we refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit of God, which is no less than Christ's presence in the Christian, we scoff in the inner recesses of our hearts. We scoff knowing that taking a different direction could bring us earthly shame or cost us earthly clout. And we prove ourselves in the end to be no better than these Pharisees. Clinging to status, clinging to comfort, refusing to heed the word of God. And so I urge you, aim for hero service over hero status. Silence your scoffing. Secondly, put aside your pride. That's ultimately the motive behind the Pharisees' actions. They were prideful. They wanted to elevate themselves above everyone else. But Jesus shows the continuity of the Old and New Testaments in verse 16. The law that the Pharisees proclaimed they were so proud to keep. The Old Testament scriptures, which included the law of Moses and the prophets of God. These were not something different than what Christ was now coming to offer to them. The law was a tutor that pointed individuals to their sin, pointed them to their need for Christ. The prophets spoke the promises that one day this Messiah, this Savior, this Rescuer, this Hero would come. And Jesus says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. That is John the Baptist. We looked at him already in this Christmas season. When John the Baptist came, something changed. Because after John the Baptist came the Hero that the law and the prophets had promised. And that hero is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He came as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus says, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. That is, the Pharisees were rejecting what God was doing. Their pride was causing them to resist God's Son, Jesus Christ. They were forcing Him away. They were rejecting the only hero they could ever have, while so many others were pressing in around Him in hopes that they might find hope and help and healing. And friends, if we're going to be saved by Jesus... If we're going to know the hero, then we must lay aside our pride. Salvation is purely by grace, through faith, and not based on our own human efforts. So don't get the idea 
that you're going to force your way in by your own efforts. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But true repentance, truly yielding our lives to Christ, does require a very forceful effort on our part to go against the flesh, to go against the sin, to go against the life that we were living. We must force our way beyond these things in repentance to behold the one who has granted to us life so freely, but also the one who calls for us to make him the Lord over our lives. Jesus declared, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, while you guys sit around scoffing, the very people who you despise, the very people who you show yourself to be more prideful than, are doing all that they can to find their way into the kingdom. That is, the crowds were surrounding Jesus. They were pressing in against him. They were all longing to be touched by him, to be healed by him, to hear his teaching. They were not consumed by their pride. They were consumed by their need. And friends, you won't come to Christ any other way than that. You won't come to Christ any other way than coming to the the, the point where you acknowledge my need is great. My sin is ever before me. I'll never be able to make up the difference between me and God. I'll never be able to stand in the presence of a holy God unless he makes a way for me to do so. But when you learn that, the good news is that he has made a way. And what you come to find is that Christ is that way. Jesus has come as the sinless one. Jesus has come as the sacrifice. Jesus has come as the righteous one who lived without sin so that he could stand in place of rotten, filthy sinners like Jeremy Parker and like, insert your name. That's the hope of the gospel. But we've got to come to that point of need. We've got to lay our pride aside if we want to get to that point. God has provided something so much greater. If if you were expecting to come into church today and hear some sort of message like, you know, clean yourself up, do the right things, walk the way God wants you to walk, and he'll grant you peace, you were sorely mistaken. Because the hope of anyone who finds the true hero of eternity is not a hope that is based in the cleaned up good deeds that we perform on our own. God offers us something so much greater than that. Romans 3, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How are we justified then, Paul? If we fall short of his glory, he goes on, he says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction of his wrath in his blood through faith. By grace through faith. God allows you to be justified. God allows you to be declared right in his standing. And so I refuse to justify myself. When I examine my heart, one thing becomes desperately clear. I need a better hero than this. And I cry out for mercy. And I search for the one who is capable of justifying my filthy heart. 
But praise be to God, Jesus has come for me. Jesus has rescued me. He has justified me. And so now I say, oh God, help me to ditch my pursuit of hero status and to give my life in service to the true hero of all heroes. I needed rescue in my past and God gave me the victory. I need rescue daily and God keeps saving the day for me. So I say to God, be the glory. Let my money and my life and my ambition and my children and my marriage be instruments in honoring him for the hero that he is. Likewise, I urge you, lay aside your pride. Come to the true hero. If you want to stand before God, you need a savior. You need a hero. You need a righteousness that is greater than your own. And Jesus is that savior. He extends his free pardon to every sinner who repents and who trusts in him. He clothes the believing sinner in his perfect righteousness, reconciling us to God. So set aside your pride and finally, know, grow, and go. That's the summary of what Jesus teaches the Pharisees in verses 17 and 18. He shows them that it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of his law to fail. And then he gives an example of the danger that comes from our efforts to justify ourselves. And he does that by talking about divorce. You see, the Pharisees had taken an exception that God had granted through Moses in the Old Testament that that a man was able to divorce his wife if he found some imperfection in her. That word imperfection really meant that she had some sort of sexual immorality. But they took that and they interpreted that their own ways because, look, they're seeking to justify themselves. They're seeking to put themselves in a right standing before God. So if they're going to do that and they're in an unhappy marriage and they want to get out of it, well, what do they do? They redefine the law so that they can continue to look right in God's eyes. And it got to such a point that a Pharisee would even divorce his wife if she burned the supper for the night. And that was not honoring God's law. Christ calls them out on this. In their efforts to to justify themselves, they lost touch with God. They didn't truly know him. They weren't growing in him. They weren't going and doing what he desired. God had declared in his Old Testament revelation that he hated divorce. And he still hated divorce when Jesus was here on the earth. And he still hates divorce today. Verse 18 is still true. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now this is a pretty important passage that... The pastors have to consider. It's a pretty important passage that, that my, my seminary professors caused us all to take up a position on. Because when someone comes to you from a context of divorce and they say, I want to be married, you've got to consider, am I potentially leading this individual into a situation of adultery? Because that's what Jesus teaches us could be a possible implication here. And it's a, it's a bigger subject than we want to tackle here today. 
But there are a lot of things that need to be considered in terms of what's a biblical marriage. What, what would be considered a biblical grounds for divorce? And is someone who pursues a biblical divorce right in being remarried? And there's some intense topics that I'll tend to take a couple who wants to be married through as they come to me for premarital counseling as they consider having me to perform their wedding. Because, because think of it. Like, w- would you go to your pastor... <coughs> Because you wanted to, to, to go into some sort of adultery. Like, like, would you go to your pastor and say, you know, that girl who sits on the back row, she really looks cute. You know, my, my wife won't notice. Can, can you give me her number? I just want to call her up sometime. No, you wouldn't do that, right? And, like, like that's a real implication. If, if what Jesus is saying is still legit, if this is still true now, if it's, if it's still potentially adultery for someone who has divorced, to marry someone else, but you come to your pastor and say, you know, lead me into adultery. And so that's an important thing that we pastors have to kind of think about. But look, friends, those who place their true faith in what God has done, those who encounter his love and understand his love and take hold of his love, place their ultimate trust in him. They yield their lives to him and they become servants of the true hero. But let me also say this, before you become a scoffer and before you turn up your noses at those who've been divorced, remember that Jesus spent his ministry around the outcasts, around the sinners, around the tax collectors. He came to adulterers and fornicators and covetous people, and he came to win them to himself. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And neither is the sin that you have committed. But if you're thinking about divorcing your spouse, then I've got to urge you to consider being faithful to God as he reveals himself here as well. That may mean seeing the prize as honoring the Lord and shining forth the gospel in your relationship with your spouse rather than just seeking the happiness of a moment, the personal satisfaction of jumping ship. The law is not going away, but here's the good news, my friends. Your sin that's revealed by the law can go away because of the hero who has come. And this hero is Christ. And so I say, no matter what walk you've been in, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how desperately wicked your heart may be no matter how foul your motives may have proven to be time and time again the hero has come and the hero offers to you life he offers to you forgiveness he offers to you not religion not ritual but relationship he offers to call you a child of god because of what he has done for you And so I urge you, cling to the hero of all heroes. Come to Christ. Yield your life to him. And you, my friends, will be forevermore forgiven by him. What are you aiming for? Is it hero status or is it hero service? We're going to close with just a few moments of invitation. and, And maybe this is a time when you need to make a decision about the Lord. You need to make a resolution about your life in the coming weeks or months or years or even the coming decade. What is it you're aiming for? Are you aiming to be a hero? Are you aiming to serve the hero of all heroes? 
Because that's the distinction. That's, that's where our resolutions must make a decision that will cause us to either fall in line with the Pharisees we've seen in this passage or to fall in line with those whom God richly, freely, by His grace, justifies and grants pardon to. And so I think all of us should just take a moment. You know, New Year's, Mark prayed about this earlier. Uh, the, the New Year, there's nothing special about this Sunday as a, compared to any other Sunday, but it tends to cause us in, to, to think about the year that it was, the years to come. It causes us to think about where we want to gear our lives. And if you just take a moment to, to consider your own life right now, are you headed in the right direction? Are you pursuing the right causes? Are you living for the right hero? And it may be that some of us need to come and rededicate our lives. Maybe there was a time when we had the right hero and we were aimed in the right direction, but we've fallen off of that path. Or maybe you've never trusted in the true hero of heroes at all. What a great time to come. What a great time to yield your life to the hero of all heroes. What a great time to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And so our worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song here in a few moments but i just want us to pause and to bow and to pray in these moments and i I just want you in these moments of silence to consider who is the hero that i am aiming to please in this coming year god you see within our hearts And it's a wonder of all wonders that you pursue us just the same. But God, we thank you that you've sent Christ to be the hero that we 